0: y'all, it's Monica. I hope that everybody's having a good summer. I hope that things are really getting back to normal. And I mean, the old normal. I feel like the best revenge is going to be if we can take back real life. (laughs) You know, I feel like that, that the powers that be have been trying to absorb us into the digital world. But I feel like People crave reality, and I'm certainly working towards that. I'm trying to carve out a little strip of sanity for myself and my family in L.A. And that, I mean, talk about hope springs eternal. I think I can do it. I'm trying, but it's taken a lot of time. So I've, of course, as you know, have been not putting out as much content as I used to. So I try to put out a show every uh, one or two shows a week but I'm hoping to do more in the fall. I have some of my time should be lightening up as I finish this house project. But as I have a little more time to do stuff, I've been thinking about what is the best use of my skills. So if you want to tell me what you want to hear from me, I had one suggestion that like a nice schedule would be for me to do one interview a week, one deep dive a week and a weekly news roundup at the end of the week, maybe even slide that into a cocktail hour, what you think, what you want. And if you would, a great way to do that would be iTunes. Most people do listen on iTunes. If you go over there and if you're feeling it, I would love a five-star review. And you can just put in that comment like, hey, we want to hear this and I will check those reviews and we can see if I can reflect those comments in kind of what I plan to to do for the fall. Thank you for your continued support and I hope you enjoy the show. Monica Perez here with a returning guest and someone who left us with a really hot opinion last time. So we had to get her back on and have her explain herself. The host of the Courtney Turner podcast. Courtney, how are you? Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm well. It's been crazy whirlwind, but yeah, we're, we're here. I want to. Uh,
0: so, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you're up to these days? Because you've got, I mean, you have the great Courtney Turner podcast, but you have other stuff that you do plus projects. So the last time we talked to you, I think you had had the big event, and I think you're planning another one. So, tell us about what's what's the latest.
1: Yeah. So we uh, we did the Cause Fest, and that was uh, what was it June 3rd and 4th, and uh, we, we were just talking about that. We're, we're now segmenting out all of the different speakers and performers, and we're going to release each one. Uh, we did the live stream. It was like 11 hours one day, 13 hours the <laughs> next day. So we're going to release like each one separately. And we're in the process of doing that. And we're planning the next one. Uh, that's going to be, hopefully, we're, we're still in the process of locking the venue down, but we're hoping it's going to be in the South Florida, possibly West Palm Beach, and on October 13th through the 15th. So That sounds very appealing. Yes. So you can look at uh, rebelsforcause.com. So rebels, plural, for cause, for spelled out. And we already have like the coming soon for the Florida event. So we don't have all the details up, but stay tuned. They'll be there.
0: (laughs) Okay, great. And then as far as your other um, content, is that all at CourtneyTurner.com? CourtneyTurner.com,
1: yeah. I you have to I,
0: spell it. Like, I can't forget how to spell your name because it's Cortenay. Cortenay. C-O-U-R-T-E-N-A-Y, <laughs> Turner.com.
1: So the,
0: one of the reasons you're one of my favorite guests is that you're so good at research. You have such good retention. You can connect all the dots. It's really amazing. And so sometimes, yeah, when I when I think of like, ah, this sounds screwy, and you're like, yes, absolutely, there's documented evidence that that is, in fact, screwy what happened to us last time. I was like, you know, the libertarian thing, I had come to this, you know, I kind of scratched my head because when I realized as an anarcho-capitalist that we weren't on the precipice of having 7 billion Liechtensteins, we were on the precipice of giving up statehood so that we could have a world government. And I'm like, right? Isn't that weird? And you're like, not weird. It's the plot. So I want to play what you said to me and then we're going to go from there if that's okay.
1: Sounds good. (laughs) That's something. So when you look at like, you know, Keynesian versus, you know, there was like Adam Smith versus uh, Karl Marx. And then you look at like uh, Keynesian versus von Hayek. And really, like you go back before them, they were both, they were all predicated on Mandeville, who was an open Luciferian. When you look at Adam Smith, right, it was very much a Luciferian concept. It's this idea of virtue through sin. Right, we should have greed is going to be good. Yeah, and greed yeah. will advance the economy a lot. Of- um, and that's not to see-
0: <laughs> Yeah, so I don't think I had gone like full Luciferian, given that I actually believe in the classical liberal concepts. But you sent me reading the last chapter of Hayek, and it blew my mind. So let's just start with. Uh, are you are you calling
1: me a Luciferian, Courtney? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, and and I will also preface by saying this: you know, people have ideas. They don't always. Sometimes, like we we aggregate ideas, we don't always know where they came from. That doesn't mean that we have like a a full on devotion to one ideology or theology. It may mean that we adopt principles that may have germinated from those ideologies or theologies, right? So there are people who are open, like, I mean, Karl Marx was an avowed Satanist, like he actually wrote right. food to Satan, but you know most people are more nuanced than that. <laughs>
0: All right, but I have to say this. So I, I one of my sons is like kind of on the same wavelength as I am, and my my husband loves the Stones and has taken us to a lot of Rolling Stones concerts, and we like the Stones. They're good. And sometimes they're really good and we have a really good time. And, but we both agree, like once I pointed out like the Marianne Faithful thing, like his first girlfriend was a masoch, as in masochism and was highly connected to the Tavistock Institute and all of this. We're like, okay, so obviously, and he went and Mick Jagger went to the London School of Economics. You're, you're like, you know, could have been an intentional cultural change agent. I don't know. But we agree that it cannot possibly act. Nothing could act as a cultural change agent if it's not good. It has to be good to work. So if you want an idea to appeal to people, it has to have its foundations in the values of the people, which is what Hayek says a lot in the end is that what he wants, people just won't accept. So you have to take it slow. So I don't know if we want or to. She's skip. a baby in
1: principle, right? The incrementalism. Yes,
0: it's total incrementalism. So, like just to get to the punchline first, but then I want to back up again. <laughs> the last chapter of Hayek is called something like uh for a new world order, like an international order, something like that. I'm sure I can yeah. find
1: it. Uh, What was it- the
0: it literally last next to the conclusion, the prospects of international order, the prospects yeah. of international order. And and he goes through, like uh it was written in 1944, The Road to Serfdom, and he goes through saying it looks like it's he's like responding in a way in this book. So he's saying people want to have an economic union in Europe and that's not going to work because we'd have, we'd have tyranny. Look at the Nazis. We'd all be Nazis, which is like completely illogical in my opinion. But he says uh, that what we really need is a political union with the authority to restrain States with, and actually States themselves need to have weaker authority, which is exactly, I see like with the climate change stuff there, they, they appeal to the international consortium of mayors, when the when congress doesn't act so i mean i just don't know what to make of it but why don't you walk us through the history and where you know yikes
1: (laughs) yeah um well i was gonna see something about uh so yeah he wants oh what you were saying he was responding and i think what he was responding to this is before the league of nations and they were in the process no or is it after the League of Nations? It's
0: before the UN. It's right before the UN. So it's right
1: after the... And he says the
0: after. League. He says the reason the League of Nations didn't work.
1: Yeah. So he's responding to the League of Nations. That's what he's responding to. Okay. Um, yes.
0: And it's it's annoying to me because th- this... He describes really the progression of the EU, which you and I covered in the last show. It was the Mil- Milner-Fabian conspiracy episode that we did and in that book i read about the trans the um the evolution of the eu which i'm sure like he's laying it out he's like eventually you can do the economics or eventually you can have more power but you have to start slow which is crazy to me and it started as the ecsc which was the economic like consortium of steel and coal industries, so it was actually cartelization of steel and coal and then it folded in atomic energy and also was responsible for the um treaty of rome and all of that as you see, then it became an european economic community everything that this guy is kind of laying out in advance and i'm just i'm just shocked i even got to the point where i started looking into the funding who funded hayek
1: Right. so that's that's where it gets really interesting, because who funded even the Austrian School of Economics?
0: So let's do Luciferianism and let's do funding
1: well, luciferianism, I, I mean, I, I actually just, you know, was going back and looking over Mandeville. And, like Mandeville's concepts were, I, I mean, they were very similar to Adam Smith, although Adam Smith had slight, you know nuanced differences. And that's what I think happens. We have all of these thinkers who have different, nuanced iterations of essentially the same core philosophies and those philosophies get carried through but then i think the masses get lost in this argument between because this is how dialectics progress we're going to split so this one is competing against this one but really what happens they compete against each other and the spiral keeps moving to the omega point and that that's the whole purpose so That's not to say that nobody has original thought or that, you know, there's never any organic original thinkers. But I think that oftentimes there really are people who are planted and they are planted intentionally to be the uh, controlled opposition. And then there's also people who are co-opted just to, you know, they're, they're funded and therefore you know, they're, they're going, they're incentivized to advance an agenda. Yeah.
0: It's funny that this should dovetail. I had shot you a 20 minute speech that James Lindsay had given in Europe. And I mean, that kind of like naked analysis makes me so uncomfortable because it's, I mean, we have been so completely trained. I have been so completely trained like that. The ideal is like colorblindness and we're so post colorblind right now from the left or the right. So when he lays out like this whole, um, like cultural Marxism is in, you know, the uh, racial terms and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's just too, he's just too spot on and he goes through the philosophers. And then I played it for my husband, my husband, like he likes Bishop Barron. So he plays me like something almost parallel to it, but they talk about Foucault, Marx, Sartre, and, Nietzsche. I say so. so Lindsay didn't talk about Nietzsche, but it seemed to me like these guys were kind of, you know, playing off each other to move the ball in a certain direction. And I'm thinking like their ideas are so foreign to like the value system at the time, as well as like anything really, you know. I don't even understand why you would want to tear down the superstructure of society. And you know what I mean? Like it's very arrogant and for people to all be on the same page like that. And, and without any moral foundation, like actually asserting subjectivism, like we have no, no objective point. Like it's just, it's bizarre to me. And are you saying that that too, that that was directed by a a hidden, but very real hand?
1: Well, I, I think it is. Uh, but before I address that, I'll just say the one he didn't mention, and I, I I need to talk to him about it because I have mentioned this to him before, but I think he's not as familiar with him. But it's so obviously a rebranding of Heidegger. Um, you know, he references thrownness. Uh, yeah, he re- he references uh, flungness a lot, but it, it, the term is thrownness. It's a I think a Wenderstalt. I, I'm going to butcher the German pronunciation of it, but essentially it's this principle. And Sartre has like a nuanced variation of it as well. Um, Sartre focuses on the despair component of it, but it's this idea that we're thrown into the world. Uh, you know, and Sartre says this is where the despair comes from because we're thrown into the world and having been thrown into the world, we're then responsible for everything we do. And that's where this, uh, you know, overwhelming sense of despair uh, stems from. And Heidegger talks about it in the sense of uh, uh, a Dazan. Dazan is uh, thrown into the world. Dazan is being, but he really refers to being as a human being. That's really what he's referencing. And what's interesting about it is uh, interesting in terms of today's times and what's going on in the culture in the cultural milieu today is that Dazan doesn't have uh, like a female male reference. Dazan is like just the ontology of being human, and he talks about how the you know existential existence, so like the existential uh, turmoil of humanity of Dazan is essentially that they've been thrown into the world and they're not they they have no control. They didn't ask for the position or the lot in life, the the cards that they were dealt, and uh, that this is which is a very gnostic kind of point of view.
0: I would say that we have culture and heritage and family. We're not we're sure. not thrown into the world. We're not like just find ourselves naked in a field. You're well, you you have to accept that that you're part of that net.
1: you do. and he he agrees with that, but his point is more that you're thrown into that. So like you you've been hurled in with this lot, like this this you've been dealt this hand. And it wasn't like you chose, you didn't choose to be a female. You didn't choose to be born where you were. You didn't choose your parents, you know, you didn't. I choose- mean, I would argue that what you are and where
0: you came from are interrelated. And that that's why, like you can, I actually believe that sometimes like people who are adopted, and I think it's a very worthy thing to so adopt people who need a sure. home, but it can be hard for them to, and for the parents. They don't to don't know where understand their roots them. are. Yes. Because, it's the it's the, because nature and nurture like have evolved hand in hand, I feel like, in culture and with human beings, like specifically, where even so Christopher Dawson, a great Christian, like Catholic philosopher from the mid 20th century, said that your environment is so important it actually shapes your physical being, and vice versa.
1: Right. But what they're arguing, this is kind of where this uh, like victimhood mentality. Uh, gets codified today in the intersectional politics uh, realm it, because they're saying that yes, like they I think they would agree with you that you know we didn't choose those things and those things are relevant, but their what their argument is that we we've been thrown into these circumstances and we have no control over them and that makes us essentially victims, which I mean I would argue is not accurate. You know, yeah, life is not fair. I think that's true. You know, I don't think we're all dealt the same hand. And I think you of
0: all people would know that. Right. That, I, I right, get that. A, you know, prenatal stress.
1: Totally. I, I get that. But I, I certainly don't think that that means that I'm a, you know, I'm doomed to a certain uh, lot in life or that, you know, I then have no uh, control over my destiny or that, uh, or that that makes me perennially a victim. I don't think that that's true. I think we all are dealt different hands. We're all dealt, you know, a set of challenges. They're all unique to each of us. I don't actually think anyone's challenges are necessarily, you know, greater than somebody else. They're they're really great for them, you know? Like what's that saying that God gives you what you can handle?
0: Yeah, but people do commit suicide, which is- No,
1: of course. I'm, I'm not undermining so someone's challenge for them is, I'm just saying like, you know, if you were to thrust my challenges on somebody else, they may be overwhelming to that person. Whereas if I were to take they they actually did a study on this where like people were uh had all sorts of different sets of challenges and they were uh given a hypothetical, like if you were to trade yours with somebody else, and every single one of these people chose their own, oh, wow. no matter how how bad they were, because it was familiar, it was their lot, yeah
0: yeah, that's interesting. and i um I get that. and i I wanted to call to your attention. I don't know if you know John McWhorter. He's a linguistics professor at Berkeley, or he used to be anyway. No. Uh, he wrote a book called Authentically Black, which wasn't really about being uh, an English professor, but he's black. And he was saying, like because he doesn't prioritize victimhood and become a victim of victimhood, he uh, may be accused of not being authentically black. I believe, I don't want to misquote him, but it's a book that will be on my shelves when I unpack my boxes. And it, I just think it's interesting because it's hard for us to say that from other people's perspective, but he's bringing a different perspective. And I I think it's true. Like, I do think it's true. And I, and I think that that's really weaponized that we all have insecurities, developmental issues, adolescence is a very hard time for everybody to understand transitioning from childhood to adulthood. And I feel like the victim culture really disempowers and exploits people by identifying an external factor, like it's worse for you because you're Black. Or like for me, when I was at Harvard, I had a friend, a roommate who said, it's like so much worse for you because you're a woman like so much worse because you're a poor woman. And I was just like, oh my gosh. She's like, there's nothing you can do. Like you should go into academia because you'll never make it in like banking or whatever. And I was really demoralized for that one moment. And then I, I just like snapped out of it. And I was like, what, what the fuck? <laughs> I need money.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> I go right. work. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that it's this idea of creating identities, but it is to shape the dialectic. This is, and, and that's really what the, the, you know, thesis of his speech was about. It, it's a tactic in order to create dialectics because it's much easier to divide and conquer people if you create uh, many factions. And, you know, you watch what they did in Africa. They This is exactly what they did. And they, they that's what they're doing here. They're trying to replicate it in Europe. Um, of course, Mao did a great job. And uh, the Frankfurt School were... I, I think really exceptional in uh, codifying this, uh, both the, the ideology and the philosophy around this, but of course the strategy as well. And it's because people who, if people become attached to uh, identity outside of the, the core of who they are um, as individuals, then it is much, they're going to become uh, much more protective of that group. And so now you've got groups fighting each other. And of course, this is going to advance the dialectic because this is how you divide and conquer. And it it this, it cr- creates this spiral effect where they're essentially the two sides are negating each other and that, that through the conflict, they advance.
0: Okay. So I also would say to, to go back to this and stuff that by making it sound like life is a an unbearable burden that's than brought up the Gnostic concept a gift from god yes. yeah so it's so the way i was brought up is that it's a gift from god so even if you have handicaps you are lucky to be here like you know people and and that's an important like i i also have another book called Gra- gratefulness the heart of prayer something like that i love
1: that yeah and you have to <laughs> yeah you
0: have to be really grateful for what you have and understand that we have like i actually speculate that this whole life on earth is a um like a journey of discovery and you can't you couldn't like having all this information visited upon you like the day you're born like say the day you're born is also the day you die and go to heaven and like you get it's all revealed to you you wouldn't really understand it because some of these things are complex right so you have to actually learn about like the true nature of existence from Experience, which which is good and bad, because there's the stresses and everything like that. But so I do see that it seems godless for starters. But what's the Luciferian?
1: Because where I was going with Heidegger when I said it was a very gnostic view is because yeah, I would argue it's not godless. It's actually the opposite. It, it's a it's very religious. It's hyper religious. It's just counter to a Judeo Christian biblical view. It's this idea that when he talks about throneness and being th- hurled in so. uh Sartre uses the term "hurled" and uh, Heidegger uses the term "thrown," but they're they're alluding to the same concept that uh, we're thrown into the world, and it's this. It's like the Gnostics who view God as the enemy because you know he limited our, he gave us this lot and then limited our powers. You know, essentially that that's why they talk about Lucifer. This is where the Luciferian uh, perspective comes into play because Lucifer is a light bearer and he's going to illuminate us with the Ah, uh, esoteric knowledge that has been limited by God, but limited to man by God. And that's that's essentially the Luciferian principle.
0: Right. Like, I hear the I get the Luciferian thing completely, but I people different, I people tell me the definition of Gnosticism and I'll think I'll understand it. Then I'll read about it, or somebody will email me or tell me, like, you're wrong. People, th- some people who are good think it is good, like Hermeticism oh, and yeah. Stuff. So what? So why? Why is there a difference of opinion among good people as to what Gnosticism is? The way you describe it, it is like a Luciferian thing, and that is also how Robert Frederick from the Hidden Life is Best podcast kind of, I think, describes it like that. But mm-hmm. then there are people who like like and respect Hermetic principles, and I, if you can tell me what that is, I would be helpful.
1: So Hermeticism is. I would look at that. It, it's not necessarily inherently Luciferian or Gnostic, but it, uh, it's kind of the application. It's how they think that they're going to achieve this uh, enlightenment and illumination is through the alchemical process, which is, you know, the hermeticism. But i I think that the reason that good people believe that this is a good thing is because in my humble opinion, I just think they're deceived. I think they're really seeking, and there are a lot of really genuinely wonderful people believe that we should be in search of this, you know, esoteric knowledge and that we should use, uh, for lack of a better word, really magic in order to, uh, achieve this knowledge and achieve this power. That's really what it is. They want to expand, uh, the powers of humanity and to, that's, you know, that's, that's why they're following Lucifer, who was supposed to be the light bearer, but that's also why Lucifer is uh, very deceptive, right? He's the most beautiful angel. And he's the light bearer, so he's going to bring all this light and this wisdom and this beauty, and he's the master of deception. So I, I think that's what it is. It's just, it's deceiving. And I think with with uh, hermeticism, you know, it's very well defined and outlined, and I think people like that. They like that there's this very tangible, I think it's like seven steps, you know, like mentalism, but it all involves magical thinking and magical principles, and uh, that is a very gnostic principle that we're yeah okay <laughs> so
0: i have observed those first called the prince of lies prince of deception whatever so when i look at this movement like what whatever's controlling the world right now to the extent that we can have something like covid which is definitely Everything about it. I, I was sick. I had it. I'm not saying it's not true. Some people think it's not true that it was actually exactly the same as a cold, but I mean I was super sick in a really weird way. It was it felt very artificial. It happened to me twice. Like I just I think that it was a real thing that somebody created and released
1: on purpose. I think so too. I know there are people who think it doesn't exist at all. It was all fear-porn. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But then there was also policies that didn't weren't a reaction to even if you thought the official narrative was true, the official policies we did not really hold logically. It's kind of like doing Saddam Hussein because of 9 11. It's like, I don't even
1: understand that. Well, these policies were all enact were all laid out before the weapon was unleashed. Yeah. So, deception is
0: an absolute, as a matter of fact, people call it like the, you know, pandemic or whatever. I dubbed it like within two weeks, the great deception. Like yeah. I said, the Great Depression, the Great Deception, yeah. and uh, so I feel like that in itself is evidence of not goodness. That deception is a part of it, and that that it is whether Lucifer is real or not. The the most powerful force on Earth right now appears to me to be deception. You know, to, to be Luciferian, if if whether it's real or not, because deception is at the heart of everything that we're dealing with right now.
1: Well, I would absolutely agree with that. But I think that, you know, I don't think you can write somebody off because they're deceived because what is it? The road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? So somebody's not necessarily a bad person because they've been misled. So it's the deceivers. Right. Who
0: are the bad people. That I is would argue sure. that,
1: yes. I think those who are deceived are human. And sometimes, you know, our desire to believe something that is very appealing and very enticing you know, yes, like if you're coming from a biblical perspective, I would argue that, yeah, that may be a sin. It may be sins that lead you to be deceived, but that doesn't necessarily make you a bad person. I think as humans, we we, we battle that within. That's that's the ultimate struggle of humanity, right? We, we're battling those forces and then we're trying, hopefully, to find truth and to live in truth. But I think we're human. We make mistakes. We're fallible.
0: Well, since we're on this, I'm going to close that line of thinking with this, which is, so I was a little bit not deceived enough to be call myself a Gnostic, but I thought Gnosticism was that, and I think I got this from Elaine Pagels and the whole uh, Da Vinci Code thing. I read all these books on the like the letters of Nag, uh, Nag Hammabi, whatever the scrolls and stuff, but that I thought Gnosticism meant that you could look at within yourself and really understand God. And then I was like, well, you have to be able to do that because otherwise you would not have any ability to defend against deception. Mm-hmm. So how would you, and I've always wondered that, like, how would you know the Antichrist if he's coming as a Pope or whatever, like as a good part, they all say it's disguised that. How would you know? And, and there are answers like by his deeds, you will know him, you know, like people will say, and, and I think that's true. I think it absolutely, you cannot be responsible for anything that you could not discern with the faculties God gave us. So I believe that when you are deceived at a certain point, you know, you can never stop looking for the truth or you do, I call it the ethical glass ceiling. That When you stop asking questions because you don't want to know the answers because they might disturb you. Right. You know, I think that's a real problem, a real threat. I think we all, it's very scary to like, look up through that ceiling.
1: I, I would absolutely agree. I, I think that that's a, definitely something we need to keep doing.
0: Okay, so Mandeville.
1: Mandeville so Mandeville, but it's right in the same line with this it's in the same vein because uh i I think when you're talking about deception right we all have we have these inherent human qualities this uh you know human nature and i I think that part of what happens is right they they the they appeal we're not all good right we definitely there are vices that we have that are inherent and intrinsic to humanity so I they but they capitalize on this and I you know, and I, again, I do want to just kind of preface it by saying that I don't think everybody who like comes up with ideas and writes on, you know, whether it be economics or philosophy is, is necessarily I, inherently just trying to spew a uh, demonic kind of, <laughs> yeah, I don't think, that. I don't know if they're necessarily aware, but. His idea was very similar to Addis Smith in this notion of appealing to, like, virtue through sin. It was this idea that through, that we would, and it was very collectivist, that it was only, virtue could only be achieved uh, through endeavoring to uh, elevate others, and collectively. And that, that was what inherently what virtue is. And this is kind of where Adam Smith got a lot of his principles because his idea that you know greed is good actually, because and it's actually going to benefit the economy because greed is going to motivate us to work hard. And therefore, we need to capitalize on that, right? This is part of the uh these this is part of the foundational principles of capitalism. This is not to you know tarnish all of capitalism. I'm not saying all of capitalism is bad, but it is inherent in the you know kind of core principles of capitalism is that people are going to be motivated and incentivized to work hard uh, because they have uh, desires and ambitions, and this is something that they that that Mandeville was really articulating, and he was uh, the one he influenced certainly uh, Karl Marx, Adam Smith, um, and then of course uh, Keynesian uh, economics and uh, von Hayek were kind of built on that but you know the foundation just builds from where it starts so it's kind of an extension thereof
0: this is like kind of pushing the edge of where my thinking is when I, i i've been thinking like what's the answer trying to figure out the answer and like the answer and it's weird because so a guy, there's Catholic priest who listens to me, sent me a book, and other people I've talked to about this that there is such a thing as like the Catholic social teaching, or Catholic, like a Catholic country is supposed to be informed by Catholic teaching, whatever. But of course, that's like horrific to an American like me because I'm like, well, there should be separation of church and state. How can you even question that? Like that's like unquestionable. But, um, but this. But now you're making me think it dovetails into this materialism that is not actually natural to to Catholics. So like the Italian and Spanish cultures are more relaxed. I'm going to stereotype and maybe I'm wrong, whatever. But from what I understand, like the origin of Opus Dei was when Franco wanted or needed people to work harder. Because right. he wanted to be economically successful. So he had to kind of introduce, in my opinion, I'm really going to offend people here, but it seems to me a little bit of pride and vanity and stuff and a little bit of materialism. Like you have to have that or you're not getting people who live in in a beautiful place where where literally food grows on trees, you know, that why should they get up and work harder than they have to when they'd really just rather like spend time with their kids and their grandkids. And you know what I mean? They have enough. And this seems to me now that you're saying that, like, because they call it the Protestant work ethic. And I've often wondered if if like the Americanism that I was raised with and that very strong work ethic that I have is actually the Protestant influence.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I don't know enough about the timelines of uh, the religious institutions to accurately assess that. But what I would say is that I I do know a little bit about dialectical materialism and that that's really what it's predicated on. And I think a really great example uh, is the, uh, what is it? The East Indian British Company, right? The whole purpose of that was to create like the uh, essentially addictions and addictions to consumerism. And if you look at the East Indian British Company, which is based on the the Dutch, right? Wasn't it the Dutch? company before that. And it's this idea that it was basically the origins of the, the drug cartels and the insurance companies, right? They had. And the
0: Dutch royal family you never hear about. So like the fact that you hear about the British royal family makes me think they're not number one. Right. But it's still like a royal Dutch shell and all of that where they were the biggest drug dealers in the world, they say. And, I'm, and my guess is it like goes down through big pharma, the way defense goes through tech Yeah, like it just evolves over time.
1: It does, and I think that uh, they also what they do they build models, and I I see it very much as the model for what big pharma is, and the insurance companies now protect uh, big pharma, and you know then you just you have have these. uh, these, like, basically these cartels protecting what was these drug rings, you know, back then it was like opium and, you know, coffee, tea and sugar, uh, but they were addictive. And I think this laid the, the model that we're seeing today, of course, it's advanced quite a bit since then, but it's it's this model of consumerism. And this is where capitalism really preys on it because, like, why would you work so hard if you... To, but essentially, we work really hard to buy things we've been convinced we need, right? We don't really need a new iPhone every year. No, I move
0: for my husband's job and then I have to like reestablish a home instead, yeah. which is quite costly. And I'm like, but if we just hunkered down in that first house, we probably would have been fine. And like we move around and it's it's like crazy. But um, one of the things was it marks that it was either between, it might have been Bishop Barron, but it might have been. James Lindsay, where the idea was the superstructure, which is the political, cultural, social thing, is overlaid on the economic structure. I guess it was Marx. And that it's designed to protect and preser- preserve the economic structure. And like as we're talking that doesn't necessarily seem super wrong, like inaccurate. Like I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying it's, it seems like it maybe it's, it could be accurate that our society in that we are like, I don't understand why there are drug problems in this country. I mean, we are the richest it's, it's self-induced mental illness. I lost two siblings to drugs, you know, and uh, more than that in my family, slightly more extended family. Um, it's just, uh, it seems that our culture does serve the the drug state.
1: It does. And I, I do think that's cultural and I do think that's intentional. So Mark's interesting, right? Because uh, he first wrote a Communist Manifesto and then he wrote Das Kapital many years later. And Communist Manifesto was actually like an offshoot of uh, the Illuminati. It, it, it indirectly, but it actually was because you it was loosely based on, uh, at least from, from my research, there's much evidence to indicate that it was loosely based on, uh, the writings of Adam Weishaupt, uh, in the original uh, Illuminati Manifesto, and then from there, uh, to Clinton Roosevelt. I always blank on the name of this book, I don't know why I blank on it all the time, but it's like the, uh, Something of natural of science of natural law or something like that. Um, let me see if I can find it. But it was Clinton Roosevelt. I will see if I can find it. Uh, um,
0: the science of government founded on natural law.
1: That's it. yeah. Uh, the science of government founded on natural law. And then so you had a uh, you had the you had the Illuminati, the Bavarian Illuminati, which was, you know, supposedly shut down. Uh, and then you had an offshoot, which became uh, the League of the Just or, you know, League of Just Men. And uh, they, I, I look at them, they were kind of, from my perspective, they, they appear to me to be kind of the original social social justice warriors. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you had the League of the Outlaws. And then the, the League of the Outlaws um, became essentially the Communist League. And uh, it was a... a sorry, uh, Engels and Marx, who were in the the League of Just, the League of the Outlaws. And then, of course, the Communist uh, League was helmed by Engels. And they were commissioned to write this manifesto for this Communist League. And Marx's name actually wasn't even put on it for years. They built him up and gave him like notoriety and publicity uh, and kind of empowered him, which we see this so often, right? They kind of pick somebody, appoint them, fund them, and then make them the figurehead. But he, what his name wasn't even on it initially.
0: Well, I, I will point out that I finally understood the religious expression or biblical that many are called and few are chosen. I feel like they, many, many are called and you can see like the ones that don't make it and you can see how one will just emerge, and and that is, I think, how it looks more organic than it really is.
1: Yes. So from there, right, we have the uh, this Communist Manifesto, and what I think is just very interesting where I was going with all of this is that people tend to look at Marx as an economist, and uh, of course, Doc. Das Kapital was his, I, in my opinion, a very feeble attempt at a- economic theory um, and maybe how he wanted to be perceived because he actually denounced uh, the Communist Manifesto. But the Communist Manifesto was really all about cultural revolution. And uh, there was, of course, the uh, very uh, secret meeting that was he- held by Lenin after the Bolshevik revolution. And... He was very concerned that they were the revolution was not spreading throughout the West because that's what Marx claimed would happen. And he held a meeting between uh, Antonio Gramsci and uh, uh, Lukács and Willy Munzenberg. And he... It was Gramsci, of course, who said that the problem was that you're looking at this from an economic perspective and that this cannot be done through economic revolution. This has to be an infiltration through the cultures. And that was very shortly after where you had the Institute for Social Research and the Frankfurt School.
0: So, okay, so how does this all (laughs) rope in? Hayek, you know, and and once you rope in Hayek, you've got them all because Hayek worked for Mises. He was at London School of Economics. He was at Chicago. Rothbard was part of that eventually. See, that's the thing. Like I can, I'll give you Mises. I don't know. But Rothbard, like I can't believe that Rothbard was really in it for the world government. So maybe at that level he didn't need to know who he was working for, or maybe you can say you're so naive <laughs> and tell me how it is. But I also discovered that the um, that that Hayek's chair in Chicago was funded by the William Volker Fund, mm-hmm. and uh, he also funded or this fund, which was I think run by. A descendant, or maybe a son-in-law, somebody of a different last name, but who inherited it from this guy who was a uh, an industrialist of some kind. I can't remember. Had Leo Strauss, um, Murray. Uh, Leo Strauss was one of the people he supported. Um, which you know, you can really go down the rabbit hole with that. I don't know much about it, but I know that even the Leo Strauss stuff is is like opaque. It's intentionally not very clear. So I really don't know what to make of that. But I don't like it when he's in the libertarian hopper. I don't either. No, and then Gary North, who, I mean, I think he wrote non dare call conspiracy. I think he was the one, and I know that there some people say, well, that was just a ripoff of maybe Quigley or a, a synopsis of Quigley. I don't know. I don't know. If people say things about it, so I don't. I don't know if I could
1: see that. It's kind of more a more popularized. I, it's more. Yeah, it's like, easier
0: to read. Like it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. I have no problem with that whatsoever. They he also founded the free uh the economic foundation for economic education fee F E E. Oh yeah yeah F E E. Uh, and then it eventually dissolved this uh, Fund, because the like third generation of people who ran it were like openly fascists, <laughs> and they tried to get Stanford and the Hoover Institution to absorb them, and they wouldn't do it. Eventually. They gave their money to the Hoover Institution, and the files of the fund have disappeared completely. So we can't ever really find out who who was financing that arm of this, but it right. puts everybody in the same category. So if I don't know if everybody knew what Hayek knew, but it sounds to me like Hayek knew because what he wrote in that last chapter is very clear what he's after. But how does this connect to Mandeville and those guys?
1: Well, I think just because he was influenced by Mandeville. I don't know that I would say that, okay. like, I don't I don't know that I would say, like, the direct funding links are connected. No, no, but yeah. I'm just saying, like, you'll yeah, call Yeah, I think it's just because he was very much influenced. And so what I will say is he was the Austrian School of Economics, right? That was kind of, he was one of the founders of the Austrian School of Economics. The Austrian School of Economics did start off from the Fabian Socialists. Like, one of, and Hayek's mentor was actually Weiser. Who was like a one of the like core Fabians?
0: Well, it was the London School of Economics, which was established by the Fabians. The Fabians, exactly. That did leave me scratching my head, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> to use the British art of understatement. <laughs> yeah. So oh, and, and he taught David Rockefeller. Yeah. At LSE, So that's fun. That's a fun yeah. thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so That to me, how they're all connected. I mean, uh, Mandeville is Mandeville was much was very very much influencing uh, Smith and Marx, and then of course you know Hayek was uh, influenced by Adam Smith, and indirectly I would say he was definitely influenced by Mandeville as well. But I don't think that I don't think that there's like a direct kind of uh, you know relationship beyond that. But there's a definitely relationship to the Fabian socialists and. I would argue that their whole agenda was to bring about a hidden hand that was leading towards a, uh, a centralized world governance. And uh, that seems to be exactly what they were talking about in the last chapter there. So so this is the thing. Let's get to a little bit of that. Um, is, so he,
0: he has this last chapter. It's... Um, I lost the uh, the title of it again, but it's right here The Prospects of International Order. Prospects mm-hmm. of International Order. And I mean, it just, I, I started, I just had to start bolding. I could, I was trying to copy down like the really shocking. Yeah, quote. I know. There's so much though. But the whole thing is shocking. I mean, I'm just randomly, one, the first thing I actually bolded is we cannot hope for order or lasting peace after this war. Second World Mm -hmm. War, which wasn't over yet, if states, large or small, regain unfettered sovereignty in the economic sphere. And then later in that paragraph, he says, there must be a power which can restrain the different nations from action harmful to their neighbors, a set of rules which defines what a state may do, and an authority capable of enforcing these rules. I mean, that's just right back to violence. Okay, maybe you're not going to call it war because it's an international police force, mm-hmm. but it's who is going to make those rules. Then he must be implying there would be a
1: legislative body, like a full-on well, multiple... It should be a political entity, not an economic entity, Right. So, of course, they're going to be a legislative or at least a uh, judiciary body that's uh, overseeing. But well, you know what it made me think of? Um, I saw this thing with the—this uh, may be really controversial, but it was really—it it totally made me think of this. Uh, I saw this thing with Cooey and uh, Malone and Hatfield, and they were talking about how uh, you, you need to have—Malone was saying how you need to have decentralization and— uh, essentially what he meant by decentralization was that you had to have, you was talking about like, you know, the stacking of bodies. And so therefore you have to have all these local, uh, you know, uh, hospitals and, uh, jurisdictions basically overseeing and counting and, uh, that, that they need to report directly to a central authority. So by decentralization, he meant have the locals skip all the intermediaries and report directly to the CIA. At least that's kind of what it sounds like. what this sounds like. It's like, okay, we won't have, you know, sovereign nations and we won't have nation states. We'll just have these local bodies and they're all gonna report to a supranational centralized uh governing body.
0: That is expressly all right, or very nearly expressly the goal when I was looking into the 15 minute cities. Yeah. You know, the 15 minute cities. So So what they have, like, they, they, it starts with actually reshaping the roads. And one of the things that was in their, their agenda was before COVID was to swap the streets for the sidewalks. So get like scooters on the sidewalks and get people in the streets. And if you put, you know, restaurant tables or whatever, get rid of parking spots. So there are these, like, um, organizations, global organizations with little local chapters of, like, we need new roads. And there's also, like, a very um, robust international mayor's group. And then there's also something which I've never heard anyone talk about. I believe it's called, like, the Black Mayor's Consortium.
1: Oh, I don't know. Though. Yeah, there's
0: something like that. I have to find it. And I mean, it really looks like a secret society. And I feel like it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's definitely like these mayors are not, not just necessarily that one, but Bloomberg has the big one, the international conference of mayors, which he established that might not be the exact term for it, but that's how he's reaching everybody. And they and so when Trump said, I'm not like re-signing up the Paris Accord. Do you remember all well, the mayors said, we're going to do it anyway? Yes. And so he gave them an excuse to do that. And, but they are answering. That's why I didn't like the Parkland thing, the Parkland event of shooting. The, one of the many things I found fishy about that was that Sheriff Israel was part of like the international uh, order of of police, you know, fraternity mm-hmm. police. It's an international fraternity. Right. Like that's, that, you can skip. So now I feel a little bit like I've been used in my, uh, you know, and, and Kapistan there is no an Kapistan. There is only world government. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's what they do when, when you were saying before about like the, the good people becoming Gnostic, right. And the, or, uh, subscribing to hermetic and alchemical, uh, that's the whole new age movement, right? There are a lot of people who are very like the whole love and light movement was sold to them. (laughs) And, you know, I would argue they're not like overtly bad people, but they're easily deceived because you appeal to human nature. And this is, uh, this is actually what my speech I'm speaking in Michigan uh, in a couple of weeks. And this is actually what I'm going to talk about is how intersectional politics appeals to what I call the compassion trap. So, as you it appeals to actually the best components of human nature that we are compassionate. But this is also uh, when you look at, like, Jordan Peterson talks about uh, why uh, oftentimes women tend to be uh, more left leaning than men, and it has to do with the agreeableness. Uh, Uh, part of their personality that women are more likely to score higher on agreeableness. Of course, agreeableness does bifurcate into uh, politeness and uh, compassion. And it's really the compassion side that uh, lends itself very much to uh, more left-leaning types of principles. And just the analogy of this, this is where people, I think, misinterpret it oftentimes because compassion isn't necessarily like you know this empathy it's think about mama bears right if they're protecting their they're very compassionate towards their 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 young and their offspring uh if something but what happens if somebody were to intrude that circle or threaten them they're going to be very vicious mama bears and that's what happens when you have these groups these intersectional groups so they appeal to the compassionate nature of these people who want to protect these groups. But that's not actually compassionate because this is where the virtue signaling comes in. And you're not, you're not really in empowering people and you're not empowering them as individuals. You're helping to strengthen and reinforce these different group identities, which then class against each other. Uh, sorry. Okay.
0: <laughs> no, I want to contribute to that line of thinking, which is I would say it's a little deeper than that for why women are are like that. They, I would say it's not compassion so much as compassion, uh, a a delusion of compassion, but really it's non-confrontation. It's fear. So your first your first line of defense as a female, I'm just talking like as a, I, I noticed this when I was a banker in New York and would have to walk mm-hmm. home at night and I didn't, you know, change into sneakers and I have a big giant ring on. And sometimes I'd be with a guy, a coworker, worker whatever. And sometimes I wouldn't or get into a cab and, and whatever. Uh, and so I was well aware, 100% aware of when I was afraid and when I wasn't and what, position i wanted to take if i don't want to look people in the eye i would always go on a busy street whatever so what you want your first line of defense is keeping your head down is not being noticed and that's the best thing to do so if you can pay people to stay on their side and i actually think jack the ripper Mm -hmm. was a psyop because they were trying to bring this like welfare state in or whatever you want to call it for social reform and Mm -hmm. people didn't care because they were like i am not you know, poor prostitute. I don't care. And they're like, well, if you don't keep them down, if you don't keep them in their little corrals, they're going to come get you. And so the last thing Jack the Ripper did was kill like a, a woman from the across the right side of the tracks, basically. And that and that did, I believe, one step led to another, and it was the beginning of like these kind of social reforms. But so your first thing is to is to um, capitulate like that. I think. Mm-hmm. But then you will if you have to, you're definitely going to come out swinging, especially for your own cubs, which is why I think that the uh, the extreme like transgender stuff for uh, yep. children without their parents' consent is meant to force people to pick a tribe. Yeah. And then they I think we might be getting set up for a civil war that we cannot win but that we will have to pick a side because I don't want to pick those sides. I don't want to be in this culture war, but they will force it on you if they start doing surgery on your children without your consent.
1: Well, again, I think that's just, it's one facet of the uh, dialectical traps that they're setting. And I think that that's just like one part of it, but they are trying to create a bulk- balkanization. And a lot of people uh, on the political right have really been advocating for it. I think it's a huge mistake. I think it's falling for the trap, but this is how dialectics work, right? What, create- what, what?
0: Could dig into that for a second. What are, what are the right, because James Lindsay said the same thing. I totally agree. Like, don't let them provoke you into overreacting. So you said that Say, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah.
1: So what I, I I always say how like the, uh, (laughs) I think the, the powers that shouldn't be, they ideologically, they align with the left. However, they target the right. So uh, another book that actually talks about this would be the fifth generation warfare book. Uh, They talk about the target audience. Now, I ideologically, the through line tends to be uh, leftist, uh, you know, ideology, However, they, the target audience is usually the right because they're trying to create uh, dialectics and division through the right. So they typically will uh, put out controlled dialectical narratives to the, that are targeting uh, the right, whether it be the dissident right, the alt-right, the you know, Republican neocon, that, that whole sphere. And they, they of course target. Individ- they've created all those different factions, really, uh, through different managed narratives, controlled narratives. And then the the purpose of that is to appeal to them, so that they will become the reactionaries. And the reactionaries are going to they're going to react in a very uh, like extreme uh, variation of whatever you know na- whatever scenario is put forth. And they're they're going to create this polarity. And then, of course, that that advances the dialectic because then, of course, what's going to happen, you have these reactionary and either they're going to set up this trap for them or you're going to have the opposition rise and then you have the clash and the clash sets itself up for the negation, which is, you know, or the chaos, which becomes the the, uh, breeding ground for the usurpation of power. And then then that just, which usually typically is authoritarian nature and then, you know, creates a perpetuation of the dialectic.
0: Do you have a vision of what you think that clash is actually going to look like? And is it inevitable?
1: Inevitable? I hope it's not. But it, the, what I was addressing specifically just in reference to what you were talking about was uh, the balkanization. So,
0: yeah, no, I mean, that what you're saying, and it's kind of disturbing, and it goes back to my thing about the stones, is so when I hear, like, when I first started listening to that thing from Lindsay, I was like, this is, you know, this is... A little outside my comfort zone. And by the end, I was like, I, I think, you know, I think we're actually witnessing what he's talking about, whether we like it or not, whether we like the terms or not. And then I'm thinking, okay, so is this guy there just to, and I don't think he is, but just to get me comfortable with moving like one step further towards Which Lindsay. Like I like him. I don't think he's fake. I just, I'm just saying like I, you know, okay, he's not actually the example I was thinking, but like he was referring. I see, I, I, I like some podcasters who used to be just total libertarians are now, you know, way further, like right wing or whatever. And yeah, I look at that and I think that what they're saying a lot of times is not wrong. You know, right. it's not wrong. It's it's right, and it, you can't or correct as they would say, like we're correct wing. Right. <laughs> I think it's funny. Um but are you being, I, you know, it has to be true to work, right? It has to be true. There has to be truth in it or you couldn't get yeah. that polarity. And that, to me, is maddening because be, I want my discernment to identify falsehood, not yes. not dangerous truths or false right, hope. Right. False hope is or what it is. It's false, hopes, false yeah. hope.
1: So I think he he el- he very eloquently outlined it, uh, James Lindsay. I, th- I think he's spot on. It was a very eloquent uh explanation of what we are witnessing. But when you talk about like the the falsehoods and the truth, uh, the analogy that I typically use is, you know, he he says how like, uh, I, I, I had recently heard him talk about this, how the dialectic is essentially like marrying, uh, you know, falsehoods to truth. The analogy I always use, and I, I think he's right, but what I always say is that it's like an ice cream cone. So you have the, the ice cream cone, which is a hook gripping lie you want to believe the lie because it's it's hook gripping It's good. It would just like make everything kind of come together or it's appealing or whatever reason, but you want to believe it. But you know, you kind of know it's a lie, either obviously or, you know, subconsciously, you suspect that it may not be right. But then you have all these sprinkles. You have these sprinkles of truth and you keep licking the sprinkles. You're like, well, it must be true because here's mm-hmm. all these sprinkles of truth. And then you keep going through, and before you know it, you've eaten the whole ice cream cone and you bought the lie. And that's really kind of how I think a lot of this cognitive infiltration works. Is the lie,
0: is the lie the tribalism? Is the lie? Because I feel like they've worked really hard to create tribalism over the past, they have I, at least 70 I mean, years. I
1: don't think that that's the lie. So, interestingly enough, I actually just interviewed, um, he was a former Green Beret, and he was talking about how he was talking about like actual. Uh, you know, cognitive infiltration and controlled opposition and counter-intel pro, how it works in the military. And he was saying that 90% of what they do is true. It's 10% a lie, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, that's why it's so, that's why it works so well. But what's and, the lie on the reactionary right that doesn't
0: want, inter- I uh, you know, I, 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 like no-knock transgender surgery? <laughs> You know what I mean so I
1: don't think that tribalism is the lie. I actually think tribalism is inherent in human nature. I think humans actually you know, right like anthropologists have done studies on this. I think leach was one of the uh, most significant where it showed that uh you know babies at first will uh like distance themselves. they're actually afraid of things that the more different they are from themselves. how do they uh, know what themselves is the, that's how they're figuring it out. So it's like they're kind of going through. That's why they identify like with their families. I think tribalism
0: can be very malleable. And I'll tell you why, because they... With like the Sykes-Picot agreement, I think, it, they, they totally tried to carve up the Arab countries, mm-hmm. driving lines through the tribes so that what would be left, each country would be this patchwork. And what I think they had to realize, or whatever, it did its part, they had to realize that those people were becoming integrated under secular rulers like Nasser, Assad, Hussein, like whomever, even um, Mossadegh in Afghanistan. So I think that they, and here in the U S like they, they are trying very hard to get us to re to regress into race-based tribalism. When in fact, I just feel like culturally Americans shouldn't be fighting against each other because yeah. of the color of their skin, because they're absolutely, we're culturally American. I mean, and I have a Chinese and black friends who are absolutely like, we like the same stuff on our cheeseburgers. Like it's just absolutely American Whereas if you have people from the different countries that our ancestors came from, we don't have the same sense of humor or anything.
1: Right. Well, I would argue uh, the key distinction there is race-based tribalism. It's not based on race. Right, okay. It's based on culture.
0: I think we're being forced into i think that what they're trying to get us to do is to make it identity
1: yes race yeah it, it's a it's identity politics which is all under this umbrella of intersectionality and so you asked me what is the lie around the right you know uh rejecting transgender uh surgeries or
0: <laughs> i like it i i, I totally coined no knock transgender surgery i like that
1: <laughs> yeah no non-transgender surgery yeah i i don't think that's a lie i think what they're where the the lie, or maybe lie isn't quite the right word, but the trap is that they want to create, and I've seen this, they're creating uh, such extreme reactionary uh, type of action uh, from, and they're, they're tying it to the Christian national movement. And, uh, I know Lindsay has talked about this. I, I've seen this. I saw it, you know, long time ago. I was terrified by it, actually, because I had a personal experience with it. And I was like, this is going to be bad. That concludes part one of,
0: I'm going to say, I'm going to call it volume two of my conversation with Courtney Turner on the Milner-Fabian conspiracy. It's going to be in three parts. The first part was kind of the introduction to the Milner-Fabian conspiracy. This, she blew my mind in that part by telling me about the Fabian roots of libertarianism and some of the influence from the satanic and luciferian. So I had to pick up on that thread. I'm not afraid of the truth. And uh, so it has been really interesting. There's a part two to this conversation. And I cannot overstate how much I enjoy talking to Courtney because she's so smart. She has so much information. She's so well-researched. You know, she'll go back and forth with ideas. And even though she's a step ahead of me, at least, or many steps ahead on most of this stuff, she is always open to um, if I start connecting a few dots that maybe she hasn't seen connected before. And I think she helps me come up with some original insights that I absolutely would not have just plowing through written material, doing kind of first primary source research like she does. I mean, it's just been, it's just great. She's like a walking encyclopedia of this stuff, which is fantastic. So I've been enjoying it and I hope you do too. If you want to hear part two of this conversation, it may already be up on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. It is definitely up in its total complete form with a video and commercial free on Rockfin, also Rumble and YouTube. And uh, if you want to hear it audio, commercial free, please sign up to Deep Dives Premium on iTunes only right now. Deep Dives with Monica Perez has a premium feed there. It's just commercial free if you want to help pay the bills and not listen to the commercials. That'd be great. Okay, so check it out. Part two is already in the can.